We're coming near the end of our journey in this book, the New Testament letter, the book of James. And this morning we're in chapter 5, now verses 7 through 12. And you can look there in your Bibles if you have them, or as well the text written on the insert and uh, in your bulletin this morning. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Listen as I read God's Word. And be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Well, in a few weeks, our family is going to gather, as we do uh, most every summer in July, up at a uh, very old lake home that my family on my mother's side have had for years in the southwest part of Virginia. And as we gather this summer, my brother will be coming down from Chicago, and we'll be there for several days together as a family. And we don't get a chance to see him much, but uh, in the summertime, we usually have one opportunity. Whenever we gather there, for, and he's only there for a few days, we're there a little bit longer, um, he always goes into the closet and pulls out the fishing equipment. My brother is a fisherman. He loves fishing. And he doesn't get a chance to do it much in urban Chicago, <laughs> where he lives, but he loves to fish. When we grew up together, in that, that going to that same uh, lake home, he would always be out there for hours and hours just fishing by himself. He has the ability to catch fish. I remember one particular day, when, uh, one time in the one summer we were there, and uh, in the same day, he caught a five-pound largemouth bass out of the lake. It was about that large. And then the same day, he caught a five-pound smallmouth bass. For those that know fishing, a five-pound smallmouth bass is very rare. They don't usually get that large. He just has a knack, the ability that seems to catch fish. Last summer we were there together, and I, you could ask my, my daughters, my wife, I think he must have caught eight or ten fish, easily all of them over two pounds each. He just constantly has ability to do so. But there's one thing about him that is absolutely for sure, that I'm sure that's part of the equation of his success in fishing. He's patient. He's very patient. He will stand there for an hour, two hours, three hours, and just throw out that rubber purple worm and pull it back slowly. And then throw it over in this spot and just wait and pull it back until finally he catches a fish. I, on the other hand, will get out there. I always get the live bait, you know, the night crawlers. I want some action happening. I get it out there. I put a bobber on it. I throw it out into the lake, and I'm waiting for something to hit. Five minutes goes by. If my bobber is not dunking in the water, going down, I'm like, I'm done. I'm not going to catch anything, and I just give up. I don't have much patience 
to fish like he does. So I'm sure his patience is rewarded because he certainly is successful when it comes to fishing. You know, thinking about patience today, as we come to what James is trying to focus our minds and our hearts on, he's challenging his audience 2,000 years ago to consider patience in their own life because they were in extreme circumstances. They were in a difficult circumstance. Many of them in, in, uh, in great times of suffering and trial in their own life. So James challenges his readers, and he challenges us today to consider our hearts when it comes to waiting upon the Lord, to trusting Him and being patient for what He desires in our very lives. So we're looking at, as I entitled this focus of James chapter 5, patience, but also promises, and we'll come to that in just a little bit. First, patience James speaks about in suffering. He challenges his reader to have patience in suffering and that there's a need for patience. Verses 7 and 8, he says, Be patient then, brothers. Again, appealing to his Christian brothers and sisters, to the family of God, the New Testament church there around Jerusalem, most of them being, as we said, uh, for weeks now, early believers that were likely most of them Jewish and, under, and were converted Jews, and they had an understanding of what James was telling them because they were, many of them, being oppressed because of the government and what was going on around them externally. And James knows that they're struggling with being patient and waiting on the Lord. So he tells them, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too... Be patient. Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. James urges them to put their trust in the Lord and not just to take matters into their own hands, as I'm sure they were tempted to do. When things weren't going the way they wanted them and they were struggling with the Roman government, they were struggling with their circumstance, not maybe having much means at all and being very economically impoverished, many of them, he was saying, trust, be patient, wait, be long-suffering. God himself is that very character, is he not? God's nature is long-suffering. His very person, is, it, it is the very essence of what patience is. God never acts rashly or impetuously. He never has. And he never will. His very character is patient. Perfect patience is God himself. Regardless of his creation and how it responds to his providence, regardless of his creature, even us created in his image and how we act and move and have our being on this earth, God never responds to us rashly. He never reacts in a way that he, at a future point, would be discouraged about the way that he acted. He would never make a choice out of pure emotion and will, harshly, rashly, that he would then regret 
later. God never acts that way. He's always patient. The psalmist says in Psalm 86, But you, O Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That is the character of God. He is slow to anger. He doesn't get angry quickly. So when we make mistakes, when we fail to submit our heart to Him, when we fail to yield ourselves to Him, God doesn't just bring the hammer down quickly and rashly. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you feel that that's the way that the God that you know is, that He quickly comes down upon you. He's waiting to pounce upon you like a lion in the corner whenever you make the littlest mistake. And that's not the character of God at all. That's not his desire at all. He's slow and long-suffering. He waits patiently with us and for us as he draws us so steadily and slowly to himself. He draws us to himself through his compassion and his mercy and his kindness and his grace. And we come to him and he's there. He's always there waiting for us patiently watching over us. God is very patient with us. Think of the scriptures and all the examples we see in the scriptures of God's patient with his creation, his patience with his creatures. Think all the way back in the Old Testament. Remember back in the day of Noah and what happened there? The entire earth and all of its inhabitants were being disobedient and rebellious to the one that created them. And yet God was very patient. And he directed Noah, of course, to then follow his lead to build the ark, to then have those eight people in that vessel. He was patient and long-suffering for a long while, but finally his judgment did come. But it was only after a long, long season of long-suffering and patience with the entire inhabitants of the world that he had created. What about Moses, Pharaoh? Remember how many times Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go, and Pharaoh's response was, okay, I'll do so only then to change his mind. Ten times Pharaoh was confronted by the Lord through Moses. Ten times he said he would relent. Ten times he lied. Ten times he turned again and did his own thing and went his own way. And God was still patient and long-suffering with Pharaoh. You see, that's the nature of God. What about Jacob's deceiving ways and how he treated his family, how he went about his own desires, and yet God was so patient with Jacob. Joseph's brothers who sold their own brother into slavery. And God was patient with all of Joseph's brothers. He could have easily chastised them and disciplined them on the spot for selling their brother off to slavery to die. But he didn't do so. In fact, years later, he brought them full circle and he showed them grace and forgiveness through their own brother they sold into slavery. What an amazing picture of the gospel the story of Joseph and his brothers. Example after example again of showing us God's long-suffering and patience with us. James says there's a need for this patience, a need to be patient and to trust 
that the Lord himself, as he is patient, will provide. He will provide for that which you need. And he tells his reader to be patient and stand firm. The examples that James brings of patience, besides just saying that there is a certain need for it, is very clear to us. Look at verse 7. He says, And see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. James first takes this snapshot of an illustration from creation and nature in a farmer. He takes the example of a farmer and mentions just how a farmer must have patience for his crop and waiting on God to provide the rain. The fall, specifically the autumn and the spring rains. Why would James mention it in that way, in that phrase? That's because those who were reading it understood in an agrarian society what that meant. The autumn and the spring rains around Jerusalem and in that, er- in that area of the Holy Land. I've had an opportunity myself to travel and to go to the Holy Land. And let me tell you, it is dry and arid and brown and rocky. And not much grows there very easily. And if you went there and saw it, you would understand. Autumn and spring rains are life itself. In that climate and those conditions for everyone, but especially for a farmer who makes his livelihood from the very soil that God provides. James mentions that these fall, autumn, and spring rains are so critical. You see, in in Israel, the farmer who was seeking to plant his crop would wait till around mid to late October when usually that season would bring great thunderstorms that time of the year. And they would come and they would soften the dry, arid, parched soil and begin to create moisture. And then the farmer would plant his seed, so then it would eventually germinate, as he couldn't just throw it into dry, cracked, arid ground. It would begin to germinate, and he would wait patiently all the way through November, December, January, February, March, and then the spring would come, and hopefully God would provide more rains. That once the germination took place, then the maturity would then be fulfilled. And the growth of the crops would take place. And every time it would rain again, it would yield even greater harvest every time the rains would come in the spring. And so to the degree that the rains would come to mature that crop, to that degree there would be a great harvest for the farmer. You see, he had to be patient though all the way through each and every month waiting for God to himself provide those autumn and spring rains. Another example of patience, James looks back in the scripture specifically, verses 10 and 11. He says, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. The prophets, Elijah's persecution, remember, under King Ahab. Jeremiah's sufferings under Judah's kings, and Daniel's perseverance, the prophet Daniel, remember him, when he went into exile, and he still patiently waited for God to provide, even while he was in exile. James speaks of the prophets and reminds us of all those great stories of the major and the minor prophets and how they displayed waiting upon the Lord and challenging God's people to wait upon the Lord. Lastly, in verse 11, James considers Job's life. Job himself. It's interesting. You remember the story of Job. Of course, you probably do. 
You've read the story, but in case you haven't, how Job experienced great loss and great suffering and went through tremendous trials and testings of his faith. It's interesting how James, though, does not use the same word here to describe Job in verse 11. He says, as you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. He doesn't say you've seen Job's patience. He said you've seen Job's perseverance. There's a difference. There's a difference between what James is pointing out. In fact, Job actually, if you read through the story of Job, Job actually seems to show impatience sometimes in his life. Does he not? Remember the story? He's cursing the day when he was born in chapter 2. And moving on into chapter 16, he describes the long-winded speeches of his friends that tried to give him counsel. And he wasn't very patient with their many, many words. Job was impatient, even in his struggle and the testing of his faith. But what does Job persevere? What does Job show through it all? He shows perseverance. You see, Job persevered, even though at times he was impatient. And in the end, as James says, Job stood firm. Job was still standing, waiting and trusting and depending that God was going to fulfill his promises. He persevered, and he persevered to the end. And what happened? What is the thing that everyone usually remembers about the story of Job? Well, let's see, great loss, suffering, struggles. Those are the things whenever you mention to anyone, do you remember the story of Job? Those are the things that come to mind. But what happens in the end of the story of Job? Do you remember? Job perseveres and God blesses greatly. God blesses greatly. At the end of the book, chapter 42, verse 12, it says, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. Verse 10, The Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Twice as much. Blessing came to Job as he persevered and waited upon the Lord. Examples James gives us of perseverance, of patience. But James also challenges us to consider if we're not patient, what could happen? What does it look like, the absence of patience? Well, look in verse 9. He says, Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged, for the judge is standing at the door. James reminds us what happens in our community of brothers and sisters, and even in our community outside the church, when patience, perseverance, is not present. The absence of patience. You see, when the Jewish believers that James was addressing were being oppressed by the government, I'm sure they were eventually growing tired and weary in their journey of their faith. I'm sure. And believers there in the church probably began grumbling and taking out their impatience against others in the body. And especially their close friends and those whom they were closest to, they probably began to grumble and complain and begin to take out their impatient struggles against those that were closest to them. Their family, 
and their church. And you know, if you think about that, think about ourselves. We're not much different. When we're in a situation where we're struggling, whether it be from the external or from within, things are happening in our life and we're feeling the stress or the predicament that we're in or the situation, we're feeling somewhat oppressed from the outside or, or things are so much of a trial or testing in our life, we also might turn to grumbling, might turn to giving words that are impetuous, words that quickly come out of our mouth that we maybe didn't desire to come out of our mouth. We have predicaments where we struggle. Sometimes if we're maybe dissatisfied with the situation in our workplace, maybe you're dissatisfied with what's happening this very coming week you're anticipating or happened last week at work. Have you been tempted to grumble? To say something against your boss or against a coworker or maybe an employee that you have? Have you been tempted or have you actually grumbled against someone in your workplace? If we're unhappy maybe with our public officials, whether it be at the local, the state, or the national level, here we have the election coming up in November. Not that far away, and we're right in the, the last few months until we're going to elect our president. Whoever it might be, whether the same or new, what, what's our heart towards our public officials? Are we praying for them? Are we asking God to bless whoever is in office right now? Or are we grumbling against them? Are we seeking to have a grumble fest because we're struggling with what we're seeing. If we aren't pleased maybe with our neighbors in our neighborhood or where we live, do we grumble to other neighbors about something that we're dissatisfied with? If we're unhappy with a friend, do we grumble against other friends we have about that person? Do we complain against them? Do those things happen because of our heart's dissatisfaction? And if we're dissatisfied with something inside the body, in the church, do we grumble? Do we complain against one another? Or do we seek the Lord's patience? Ask Him to give us a heart of satisfaction and contentment. Asking Him to provide that which we desire from our heart. And look to Him to provide rather than take matters in our own hands and use our own words to try to bring about something that we're dissatisfied with. You know, probably one of the hardest struggles that any of us would have is when we're really hurting about something in our life and something has really caused us great stress or dissatisfaction. And then we in turn grumble or complain or even act impetuously or rashly not against a person or against that situation, but against someone that is just in the way, just happens to get the fire. Maybe our family, our spouse, our children, and something just comes out and we act away. That's really not against them at all, and yet that happens so easily. We have to watch our heart so carefully. You know, when we wait patiently and trust God, we find that our mouths are full of a new song that he places there and that we can sing his praises because he places that song. Psalm 40 says this, 
I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. You see, what Jesus does is he places a new song in our mouth to replace our grumblings. He plates a new song in our mouth, not the old song that we used to sing, but he gives us a completely new song. And it comes out of our mouth because it starts in our heart where he has placed it. And it just pours out the new song of his grace and his kindness that he's poured over us. And when you really reflect on what the Lord has patiently done for you, you do have a new song in your mouth. When you reflect on the Lord's patience, what does that mean for you? When you think about what the Lord has done for you and his patience, what does that mean to you? Second Peter says this, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. The Lord's patience means salvation. Have you thought about that? God being patient with you is best displayed in saving you. Why is that? Because you're that bad. And so am I. We're that bad. We're that sinful. We're that much in need. And there's nothing we can do in ourselves to resolve our predicament, morally or spiritually. God himself is patient, drawing us to himself. And the greatest display of his patience is that he's long-suffering and draws us to become his own and pulls us close to himself and makes us his own. That's the greatest display of all eternity of patience, of long-suffering, of perseverance, is that God draws us to become his very children. And what does the Lord's patience do for you? What does it do for me? Well, at the very core of God's patience is where we find the gospel. God's mercy. Look at verse 11 in our text. He says, the Lord, after he speaks about Job's perseverance, he says, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. You see, that is God's patience. It's compassionate. It's merciful. God is only patient because he's also compassionate. He's merciful. He's gracious. That's how he can be patient because he's also merciful, even when our sins deserve otherwise. Romans chapter 2, the question Paul asks, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? You see, it's the kindness of God that that draws us to him. It's his kindness and his mercy and compassion that leads us to love him and to desire him as he's patiently dealing with us. You know, after James goes through and talks about what the perseverance and patience of God looks like and how we're called to be that, he then kind of, it seems, almost seems to somewhat maybe switch gears out of nowhere in verse 12. Almost to disconnect from his train of thinking about the patience and the perseverance of God and his call to us to an entirely different subject matter. 
He just changes on a dime. Verse 12, above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. Let your yes be yes or your no, no. You'll be condemned. James is talking here about the veracity of our words, what we say. The veracity of what you say. And what does that mean for us? One could argue that when we become impatient or frustrated, when we act rashly with our circumstance, that maybe we're prone to say things that we really don't mean or that we absolutely can't fulfill. That might be why he eventually said this right after he spoke about patience. Not sure whether that's James thinking or not, but whether it is or not his line of thinking, James clearly, as he's been doing throughout this entire book, boldly challenges us to put our faith into action. As he does here in verse 12. At first glance, when he says, above all, brothers, do not swear, it seems that maybe James is promoting the same thing that every good mom would do with her child by washing their child's mouth out with soap. <laughs> Not that we do that anymore, maybe. Maybe you've never had that done, but we think, now don't you swear, thinking of a curse word. Thinking of, that's what James is addressing here with the believers. But that's really not the case here, I think, that James is trying to focus on. Us with. James begins by explicitly addressing a very common practice in Jewish custom of strengthening one's personal statements with what they called non binding oaths. Follow me. A non binding oath. You see, the Jewish background of the moral law that God gave through Moses said, what does it say? The Ten Commandments. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God. We're not supposed to misuse the name of the Lord thy God. You see, when a Jewish Israelite used the Lord's name in an oath, it was called a binding oath. And to not fulfill that oath, using the Lord's name as a binding oath, would be very egregious, would be very dishonoring. To their God. So they were very careful about making a binding oath in the name of the Lord thy God. So, what the Jews did, and this is what James was addressing, this practice that was common even in their day, what the Jews did, which I will say we all might have a tendency to do with God's commands when we try to manage our obedience to God's commands, we all do this was to allow for an oath, they would give an oath, without using the Lord's name. Therefore, it would be a non-binding oath. I'm not using the Lord's name, so it's not, I won't maybe suffer the consequences the same way. It's not as bad as using the Lord's name in a binding oath. So therefore, when I say I'll do something, I make a commitment, I won't use the Lord's name, so it's not binding. So if I broke it or didn't fulfill it, well, that's okay. You see how they were thinking? Basically, it was legalism. Basically, it was saying, if I technically do this, then I should follow it this way. But if I technically don't use the Lord's name, then it's okay. My words can just be whatever they may be. James is trying to hold them accountable and basically is telling them they needed to stop living by the letter of the law and start living by the spirit of the law. 
That's what he's challenged them to consider here. The spirit of the law would be to keep their word. Whatever they said would be their word. To keep their word. Let their yes be yes and their no be no. And there's no need to have to say in the name of the Lord or the name of heaven or earth or any other thing. There's no need to have to swear by anything else outside of the very word that they have stated to be true. Jesus said in Matthew 5, But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair black, white or black. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Anything beyond this, Jesus says, comes from the evil one. Just a few minutes ago, we had those standing before us that made a public commitment. They gave their promise to fulfill those commitments to us. Most of you sitting here have made that same commitment to fulfill to this body and before God and before us that we strive by all of God's means and His grace to fulfill those things. And so we pray that all of us, along with them, by His grace, would do so. And yet the application that James is bringing out is very clear for all of us. Whenever we open our mouths to make a commitment, we all should make every effort to keep it. We really should. When we say, I will do something, your word should have great veracity. When you make a commitment to someone personally, it should mean something. Now, of course, today, in a very litigious society, when someone makes a commitment, a handshake is, doesn't mean very much in our culture like it did even 50 years ago. And yet, we should be different as Christians. We live in a society, though we may have to have contracts and legal kind, all those things, we can still live as if we don't need those things. We don't even need those contracts because our word keeps its commitment. We make that desire. Social commitments, family commitments, work commitments, church commitments, any other arena, we all must be careful to keep our commitments that we make and seek to guard not our reputation, but God's reputation by fulfilling those commitments. You see, if you don't fulfill a commitment, it's really, I hate to say it, not that big of a deal about your reputation, though your reputation may be marred. What's more important is the reputation that you live for, the one that you say you follow and you worship. You see, our reputation doesn't mean anything, but God's reputation means everything. His name should mean everything to us, and that we seek to fulfill those things, to honor Him in our life. You see, again, the gospel reminds us that God promises to fulfill his commitments to us, his children, for all eternity. The promises that the gospel has made for you are going and are being and have been fulfilled. And they will never be broken. Never. You know that's true. Because if they were broken, you would then be destitute, just like me. But God 
keeps his promises. He's never broken one promise ever. And that's why we have his grace, because he's promised us his grace, his forgiveness through his son, Jesus. Jesus' perfect obedience in life and death, those are God's yes to us. So when God's yes is yes and his no is no, it's because Jesus' life is God's very word to us. John chapter 1, 14 says, And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the veracity of God's word. He is truth. He is the very display that God's promises have been and always will be fulfilled. And that is our greatest blessing.